Haggai 1, uh, 1 through 11, the command to rebuild the temple. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Serubabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new vine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Nailed those names, Linda. Great job. Uh, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're starting a brand new teaching series, a brand new uh, sermon series uh, through this small book of Haggai. Uh, I mean, it's literally one of the smallest books in the Bible. In, in my ESV right here, you just open it up to this page and you've got like the first chapter on the left and the last chapter, the second chapter on the right. Uh, I ran into uh, a new friend of mine at the coffee shop yesterday and he's like, like, what are you guys going through right now at church? And uh, I, I mentioned that we're going through the Old Testament book of Haggai, and he called it, he's, he's like, oh, the forgotten book, right? Uh, he's like, so many people forget that the book of Haggai is in the Bible, but uh, what I want us to see is that what was written uh, in this book 2,600 years ago is so relevant for, for us today as Christians in the 21st century, particularly as a new uh, church plant that is moving into our, our second year since our, our public launch. And so um, let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started in our text this morning, okay? Uh, Father God in heaven, thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to be in your word to discover from the great book of Haggai what it means to follow Jesus today. Holy Spirit, you make the words on, on these pages come alive to us, come, come active in our lives. And so would you soften the soil of our hearts so that we can be teachable with the conviction of your word? humbled by the power of your word and eager to see and savor the goodness and beauty of Jesus this morning in this text. It's in his great name we pray. Amen. Uh, so the other week, 
uh, someone uh, from this church gifted us some really delicious, organic, homemade apple butter, right? It was like pear butter slash apple butter. It was 100% organic. It was really good. It was very good. And it, it, it came in this little jar that was like filled up to the brim. And, and, and so we, we toasted some of that good old like Metcalf sourdough bread right? Uh, slathered that, that apple butter on there. Uh, it was just perfect. And then shortly after Alyssa and I had our initial taste, uh, Alyssa went into uh, the other room to, to get something for a few minutes. And uh, the strangest thing happened to the rest of that uh, apple butter uh, while she was gone uh, that she left with me. Suddenly, suddenly within minutes, it wasn't filled to the brim. <laughs> suddenly it was almost all gone apparently without even thinking about it I just went to town on this tiny little jar and Alyssa totally got jipped uh, I was so nervous about how much I saw was left I was like oh my gosh I almost finished it that for 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 lack of a better word I took the larger share uh, of the 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 jar and left this the scrappy bottom uh, for my wife now in some way, <laughs> in some way, that's how a lot of us treat our relationship with the Lord. In some sense, that's how a lot of us treat our relationship with God. We, we take the jar of our, our time, our talents, our resources. We, we indulge in the things that we want to spend them on. And then before you know it, there's little left over, and, and, and we're like, hey, maybe, maybe what's left, this, this small portion, maybe, maybe that should go to God. We say things like, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do first, and, and then if there's time, like maybe I'll, I'll serve God, or, or, or I'm going to buy the things that, that I want to buy first for, for myself, and, and then I'll, I'll give. I'm going to go to the things that I want to go to first, and then I'll see if there's room left on the calendar after that. But, but following the Lord, following the Lord is not about sort of like fitting him into the rest of your life, wherever there's room. Following the Lord is about actually following him as Lord. In the truest sense of that word. I mean, if, if he is Lord over your life, then he has priority over every aspect of your life. And to, to be clear, I'm not saying that every second of our waking lives needs to be like some explicit uh, ministry. I'm more talking about like an orientation of our heart around one of our greatest priorities. And this is what the book of Haggai is all about. It's all about what we might call kingdom priorities. You see, deep down, deep down, the life of God's kingdom, I think, is what we're really after. Life in God's kingdom is what we're really after. We all long for real purpose in life, don't we? How many of you have ever asked questions like, like, what am I here for? What on earth am I here for? 
What is the meaning of life? What is this vision of the good life that we're all just sort of longing for and chasing after, but we just can't seem to attain? The Bible calls this the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God, this reality where you are finally living under God's rule and reign and he's making sense of your life in the world around you. And so, and so for that reason, we're calling this series Kingdom Come. It's this idea that true purpose, true meaning, and true human flourishing is found in knowing God and in participating in the work of his kingdom. And so with that sort of preface, let's, let's dig into our text this morning, beginning in verse 1 of the book of Haggai. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. It's a powerful verse right there, right? <laughs> there's a lot to tease out in this in the, in the, in this in this text. It seems like there's a lot of history here going, right? And so and so to to tease this out and to establish us and set us up for the next few weeks and to help us make sense of this verse and the greater book of Haggai, uh, let's go back to the beginning. We'll go back to the beginning. See to understand Haggai we need to understand the story from the beginning. Now, I'm talking the very beginning, so sort of buckle up, all right? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want you to really just let the gravity of that verse sink in. There was a time before all that we know, before all that we take for granted, long before the internet was invented, long before you were born, before roads were a thing, before creatures were given their names, before mankind was formed from the dust of the ground, before the stars were spun into their places, there was a time when all there was was God. The uncreated one. There was a time where all there was was God. There, there were no angels praising his holiness back then. No people to know him and to worship him. He's just the God who just is. Eternally is. That's why when Moses asked, who should I say is the God that sent me? God replies, I am. And Moses is like, come again? And, and God's like, I am that I am. He's just the God who eternally is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was a time when all there was is God, and all there is and all that we know was just a mere thought in his mind. Think about that. Let that sink in. Like if God didn't think any of this up, nothing would be here. You wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. This ground would not be here. Do you ever just think, what if, what if God never just made, what if he never made any of this? 
Like some of us walk around thinking like, like everything revolves around us. You wouldn't even be alive to think those self-centered thoughts if, if God didn't think any of this up. And then in the first few chapters of Genesis, what we see is that God creates mankind from the dust of the earth that he created. Adam and Eve, our first parents, living the good life that we all constantly long for. But then with their first sin came the first judgment. And the dissonance of sin disrupted the harmony of God's creation. But then in God's grace, God gives them good news. He gives his people good news, the first gospel, that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of evil sin and death, which is foreshadowing the coming of King Jesus. And now despite God's promise of salvation, the world from that point on goes further and further into the pits, right? Up to the days of Noah. Uh, I told you we'd go all from the beginning, right? So up to the days of Noah, and that moment, mankind is just hell-bent on destroying themselves. But then God, in his holy justice and sweet mercy wipes the earth of the disease called humanity, except for one small family. And then he declares a covenant, which is a bond stronger than a promise, that he will preserve mankind, setting the stage now, setting the earth as the stage for the coming promised Savior that he spoke of to Adam and Eve. And then from that moment on, the world continues again to spin out of control. And then from there evolves the first world religions. Every tribe is worshiping a God other than the God. And, and mankind starts to make gods in, in the image of even like vile body parts, sort of indicating that we chase after our own appetites. We'll, we'll, we'll find our purpose and our meaning and our, we'll worship our own appetites, worshiping creation rather than the creator. The whole world, again, starts to going towards rebelling against God again. And then centuries of that continue, and then God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. And then God says to Abe, he says, look, I'm changing your name from Abram to Abraham, which in the Hebrew has sort of like this plural flavor to it. It means father of many. And Abraham's like, okay, God, but one problem, I'm like 100 years old, right? And my wife Sarah is like 90. And things are not as spicy as they used to be. Right? But God says, no, look, this is what I'm doing. Watch me. I'm going to make this happen. Watch me. I'm your God. This is going to happen because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. Your descendants are going to become this great nation. A small nation, but a great nation. A mighty nation. That nation is called, called what? Israel. That's where the nation Israel came from. Now, eventually, the nation Israel, they start to get attacked by these other nations. The biggest of these nations attacking them are, are, are at one point the Egyptians. And then the, the Israel gets enslaved by the Egyptians. And then God, because again, because of his mercy, because of his unfailing love for his people, 
He intervenes. He raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And then God's judgment comes down on Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And then Moses leads the people out. He delivers the people out. And once they're free from Egypt, God establishes another covenant. He gave them laws so that justice and mercy would thrive among them. There were laws of worship that would set them apart from all the other nations and it would also remind them of their special relationship that they had with God. Laws about having priests who would mediate between God and the people. Laws about a tabernacle, which would be this central place of worship. Laws regarding sacrifices, which would depict God's wrath against sin poured out on a substitute. And in all of this, they didn't even realize how God was setting all of this up so that they would one day recognize Jesus, the greater deliverer. And then, true to form, again, God's people have their ups and downs. They eventually rebel against him again. They forget his goodness. And so God establishes another covenant with a king named David. David, in some sense, was a good ruler, but a really sinful dude. God promised, though, uh, to David that through David's line, through this imperfect, broken king, through David's line, would come a greater king, a perfect king, who would reign in righteousness. David's son, Solomon, would eventually build this great temple. He would build this temple in the kingdom which was beautiful. It was known for its beauty. And in the temple, there was this Ark of the Covenant. Uh, There was this upgraded tabernacle. There were just the Ten Commandments were there. Uh, The temple for the nation of Israel was like where it was at. Everything revolved around the temple. It was a shrine for their relationship with God. But then eventually... Generations later, sin starts to take root in this nation again, in this kingdom again. And then there's division in Israel between the north and the south. The north gets conquered by Assyria, who takes the people and carries them off. The southern kingdom was a little bit tougher. They had a, a, a slightly, slightly more faithful under the leadership of Hezekiah. But then the Babylonians came, destroyed them, and then carried them off. And so there's this point in time where all the Jews, all the nation are out of Israel, out of the land. And then the Persians come in, which if you've studied world history, is called the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Persians come in, they've got this king named Cyrus. Uh, and, and, and with this Persian empire, they, they kind of take over, they over, overthrow all the other empires. And they've got this king named Cyrus who was not a believer, but God works in his heart to give a decree out to all the lands to say, let the people of Israel back into their land and give them everything that they need to rebuild. A governor is appointed named Zerubbabel. And a high priest named Joshua. Uh, So you have a governing leader and a spiritual leader. And both of these men lead the people back to the land. And during this time, the Medo-Persian Empire is given a new king by the name of Darius. And a year later, God raises up a prophet named Haggai to speak to his people. 
that is the Old Testament up to the book of Haggai. Now, obviously, I skipped a few things uh, here and there. But here we are. This is the stage that's set for this tiny book of Haggai. The temple at this point is destroyed. It was destroyed, and now they're back in the land. And first, they celebrate their party. They're, they're, they're like, we're back. We're doing this. They start rebuilding the temple of God. But eventually, just a few years in, they abandon the rebuilding of the temple. And they abandon it at this point for, for many years. And that leads us now into the word that they get from the prophet Haggai. And the first point I want us to see from this text is that we need to examine our priorities. Examine your priorities. This is the first message from the prophet Haggai. We see this in uh, verse 1 into verse 2. When uh, Read that again with me. It says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So you've got the, the governing leader and the spiritual leader. And then Haggai, the prophet, was raised up to, to give a word to both of these men. And in verse 2, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, mind you, they, they were given all the materials. They were given the command to rebuild the temple. But here, Haggai comes in to the two leaders, leading the people back and saying, hey, what's going on? What's going on? God's saying, look, these people, these people, they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This verse here, verse 2, is God's perspective of the excuse that the people were making on why they shouldn't build the temple right now. They put it off for about 15 years after God delivered them, brought them back, gave them directions and resources to build it. And what's their excuse? They say, it's not time yet. The time hasn't come yet. Now, first of all, we should find it interesting how God doesn't call his beloved nation my people, but these people. That's what some theologians call a sick burn, right? Like when my wife says, hey, do you know what your son just did, right? Like she doesn't want any ownership in that. Like, do you know what your son just did? When God says these people, you know, whatever, whenever, whatever it is that he's talking about, you know it's not good. Now, look at the next couple verses. In verse 3, he says, then, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, and, and now he shifts his attention to the people. So in verse 2, Haggai comes with a message for Zerubbabel and Joshua. But now he shifts to speak to all the people. And here's what he says to all the people in verse 4. He says... This is coming from the Lord through Haggai. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the Lord's house, lies in ruins? Now, this is hilarious to me because if you look at it, you know, God is using sarcasm. <laughs> He's using sarcasm here to make a sharp point. He says, hey, is it time for you guys to really like dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Like sometimes sarcasm can be like a holy form of rhetoric. 
right? According to this verse. He says, oh, so it's not time for you to build the temple, which is obviously a big deal to the Lord, but it is time for you to build your paneled houses while the house of the Lord rises in ruins. Cool, guys. (laughs) Cool. See, the temple wasn't just any old building. The temple was not just any old building. It was supposed to be the center of God's community. It's where they would worship and enjoy God. It's where they would hear the word and remember his deliverance. It's where they would teach their kids about the Lord. It's where strangers from other nations could learn about God's love for the world. But instead, these people, as he calls them, are chilling in their paneled houses. Paneled houses, that's like this crafty woodwork that would, that would like line the inside of a home. It was a luxury, not a necessity to have a paneled house. It was a luxury. Uh, think of like crown molding, right? doesn't really serve a purpose. It's just there to add a little bit of flair, all right? That's what these paneled houses were. Now, to be clear, God is not bemoaning the fact that they had these paneled houses. God's not bemoaning the fact that you have crown molding. He's not bemoaning the fact that they have nice things. The problem is that they've prioritized themselves over and above his kingdom. The problem is both with their faith and with their priorities. You see, on the one hand, they don't have enough faith that if they do prioritize prioritize God, that he'll take care of their needs. But on the other hand, they're also spending their time and money on their own homes while neglecting the Lord's. They have a faith problem and a priority problem. You see, Haggai, the prophet, is exposing that double standard that we have. What excuses do we make for not prioritizing the Lord? For not making his priorities our priorities. Gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day for word and communion. Gathering during the week for service and community. Giving generously, serving others with our time and the gifts and talents that God has given us. We say things like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have the time right now, or, or I don't have the resources just, just yet, or, or, or my favorite, God hasn't called me to that yet. <laughs> we over-spiritualize things. Maybe the 21st century version of do you have time to dwell in your paneled houses like for us is, is hey, do you have time to watch Netflix? Do you have time to watch the game? Do you have resources and money to spend on an HBO subscription or that Target shopping spree? Where you say things like, God hasn't called me to, to quite serve yet. And again, nothing's wrong with Netflix and sports and Target. I did my Stranger Things binge like two months ago. The issue is in indulging in those things as your first priority and giving God the leftovers. Leftovers. 
leaving only what's at the bottom of the jar, the scraps. And so this is why the Lord says in verse 5, Haggai says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That's the call for us this morning. Consider your ways. Examine your priorities. This exhortation, the fact that it made it in there, this exhortation from the Lord through Haggai is evidence of the Lord's patient kindness with his people. He's saying, hey, look, let's stop for a minute. Let's take stock of these last 15 years that you spent pouring into your own kingdoms and neglecting mine. And and what can we learn from that? You see, God's pursuing them. He's teaching them. He's, he's, He's chasing after them. He's being patient and kind to them. He's calling them to consider their ways. And then in verse six, he says, look, you've sown much. And harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The point he's making here is our actions have consequences. When our priorities are out of whack, that has consequences. He says, look, you, he says, they planted, but the harvest didn't yield what they thought. They drank, but they still hunger and thirst. He carries on that analogy with clothing and with income. But what we know is that God desires for his people to prosper. He desires for his people to to prosper, all for the glory of his name and for the good of their neighbors. He he wants us to to dwell in that place where where we we have so that we can give. And that's why we see this in in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. When it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the period that that, that this is being said. Uh, In verse 5, he says, build houses there and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear, bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, there there is a sense into which God gives us ample time and resources and gifts and talents so that we can then in turn be a blessing to those around us for the glory of God's name. God wants that for us. And when we squander what he's given to us and instead use it to build up our own kingdoms, our own status, God may very well take some of those away. 
out of his love and out of his mercy to get you back to him and with his priorities. So how do we prosper? How is it that we prosper? We examine our priorities, but then we also need to in turn, having examined our priorities, now establish God's priorities. That's our second point, establish God's priorities. What is it that you do when you've examined your life and find that you've not prioritized the Lord? You find yourself burned out, empty, hungry for something that the table of the world cannot satisfy. Verse 7 Verse 7, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So in other words, God is saying, look, I want you to take all that same energy that you put into your paneled homes. I want you to pour that into my house. I want you to pour that into the temple. I want you to take the time that you spent on your own kingdom and invest it into my kingdom. I want you to take all the resources that you spend on earthly things and I want you to give them to what lasts forever. And when you do this, when you do that, you'll sense my pleasure, God says. I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, he says in verse 8. Or in the words of Jesus, seek first my kingdom and all these other things will fall into place for you. Now look, look again how committed God is to us getting our priorities right. I want you to read verses 9 to 11 for me. Uh, it's kind of a daunting passage. He kind of doubles down on, on what he mentioned a couple verses earlier where he was like sort of disciplining uh, his people and, and, and teaching them to, to, to get their priorities straight. But, but in verse 9, he says, look, you guys looked for much. You guys looked for much and behold, it came to little. In other words, how'd that turn out to you? It came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, which each of you busies himself, or while each of you busies himself with his own house, <coughs> therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth have, has withheld its produce. And I, God says, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. <coughs> God is saying, look, you guys looked out for yourselves. You looked out for number one, but how'd that work out for you? You know how much God loves his children? He'll make us miserable at the table of the world so that we can come back to the table of the Lord. That is how much God loves his children. And some of us might, might, might feel like, that, that, like that, seems, that, that sounds mean, right? That sounds mean. Like, why would God make them miserable like that? But man, they're investing their life into things that will just leave them empty. And so because God loves them, out of his mercy, out of his affection for them, his covenant to them, his promise to them, 
He's willing to make them miserable at the table of the world so that they can learn to come back to the table of the Lord. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Have you ever found yourself in this place where your priorities are all out of whack and then one day it just seems like every little thing is just going bad for you that day? Like that's the kind of situation that the Lord is talking about here where he loves in a gentle way, in a loving way to make a mess out of things to get you to back to truly fulfilling, to back to a truly fulfilling life of purpose and meaning and flourishing. You see verse 8 here, verse 8, when he says, Go up to the hills, bring wood to the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. That is the patience of God. He was patient with them for 15 years. And now he's calling them back to the work he originally called them to. Verse 8 is a gracious invitation to repent. It's a gracious invitation to repent. He says, go up, bring wood for the house. This is the Spirit's reminder that, that, that repentance is, is not just this vague, like uh, a spiritual work that we do, but, but repentance often, calls, often, often requires real work in the real world. Actually being obedient, a matter of action. You see, for them, repentance looked like actually getting out of their homes, going up the hill to build the house of the Lord that they were originally called to. For you and I this morning, obedience might look like calling that friend, stopping to pray for someone, writing a check of generosity, asking for forgiveness, being willing to have that hard conversation. What does repentance look like for you? The things that you've been called to by God that you've been putting off for so long. And look, as a new church coming up on finishing our second year, we need, we need this message today to examine our priorities as a people individually, but also collectively as a church, to examine our priorities and to establish God's priorities in our lives and in our church. Haggai was telling the people of Israel to remember their great God and all that he's done for them by building the house of the Lord, the temple. But now, Today, under the new covenant, it's different for us. You see, because of Jesus, it's different for us. Our mission, our calling is different. In Haggai, the people were called to rebuild the temple and, 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 and through Nehemiah, the city walls, because that's where the holiness of God dwelt with God's people in this temple. All this pointed, all of this was to point forward to the time that Jesus would die on the cross to adopt undeserving sinners like you and me into the family of God. 
So when the holiness of God, the glory of God breaks out of the building and all of the people will be a holy living temple. That's what this pointed forward to. There's a reason Jesus in his final hours of his life said this temple is going to be destroyed. You're not going to have any need for it anymore. Because the presence of God is no longer found in a place. It's found in a person. And the Spirit of God, the dwelling of God, is no longer in a geographical place. It's in a person. And when you're in Jesus, God's Spirit dwells in us. It dwells in the church. We are now the holy living temple. That's why 1 Peter says these words in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The local church, disciples of Jesus today, we are that spiritual house. The church, disciples of Jesus, are the spiritual house that God wants built it's, uh, it's been said once that I, I can't remember where I first, first heard it, uh, but it's been said that, that now that there's no more temple, there are really only two pieces of furniture needed in a church, a pulpit and a table, a pulpit for the preaching of the word and a table to serve the Lord's Supper. And that saying is not meant literally, uh, obviously we don't, we don't have a table, <laughs> uh, it's in the back, I guess. Uh, but uh, it's not meant literally. The point is, the point is, what we need as a church is no longer a place, but just a reminder of who Jesus is, the declaration of what he has done, to delight in all that Jesus is for us, to declare the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, and to display that gospel to the watching world. It's a way of saying, we are marked by the gospel. Disciples of Jesus are marked by the gospel. The most important work that we need to prioritize is tethering ourselves to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so our single priority our single priority as believers today, our single central priority as King's Cross Church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It determines all that we do. We worship on the Lord's Day because of this gospel, the day that Jesus rose. We gather as a community of the gospel, people that have been changed and adopted into a family together. And then we live as missionaries in the world because we want as many people as possible to be transformed by that same gospel. And so this morning, examine your ways. Examine your ways. In what ways have, have the way that you've stewarded your, your time and your resources not prioritized the fame of God, just knowing Him, making Him known? Establish His priorities. Establish His priorities. Love the church. 
love the saints. Center your life on the gospel. There's no greater priority for the believer. That is our single message, our single priority. We worship because of this gospel. We gather because of this gospel. And then we're sent into the world to share that gospel with as many people as possible. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.